God, I pray today um, that that reality will show itself off in our lives as we hear your word. So God, let, let please, God, let, let the words um, of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Almighty Jesus, my strength, uh, my redeemer, our redeemer, in whom we trust. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. amen. Um, my wife and I um, have, <clears throat> we, we have, we have cable in the house. You know, we got a low-grade version. We got like that major version, like some of y'all got everything, you know. We only got a couple little, little, little channels, you know. And um, I got, you know, the, the one in the kind of the living room is hers. So she could tape what she want. You know what I'm saying? I ain't going to bother that, you know. Um, the basement one is mine in the man cave. So, <clears throat> so, so the joint down there is in the man cave. But every now and then, right, she will, she will tape something, right? And we're supposed to watch it together. Now, um, I always know usually if she want me to watch something, um, she's trying to tell me something, right? So um, it usually it's Home and Garden or Food Network, but this time it was A&E, you know. And she said, come on, sit right here, baby. And she rubbed the couch, you know, then rubbed my back so I could sit all down and carry on, make me soothe and all of that so that she can prepare me for the kill. <laughs> so, so, so we turn on this program on A&E, and it's called Hoarders. Right? You know what I'm saying? So I'm sitting there, you know what I'm saying? I said, you know, honey, I just want us to watch this. I just want you to see what these people are like, right? So I'm sitting there like, all right, babe, you know. So I'm sitting there, you know, we watching the joint. Man, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, tripping, you know, off uh, of people's stuff. Because, I mean, people sometimes have trash up to the ankle. Cats running all over it and carrying on. You know what I'm saying? Like, as soon as they come in, the cat, and run out of the way, you know what I'm saying? Then, you know, and then it's like paths made. Like, and the person's just walking through like there's nothing there. I'm like, I'm looking like, like, do you see there's, I mean, and then it's reekable. Like, t bathroom, just, just murky. Just, I'm just put it that way. Just murky. Shower look like it's not used. I mean, everything's kind of a mess. But what's interesting <laughs> is they allow people to just come into it. I mean... And they just walk through it, come on this way, and you're like, hold on, like, do you see that it's, it's trifling on steroids up in this joint, right? You know, and so, but, but, but it was interesting is, is as they bring people through there, they don't see that, that, that those things are a barrier to them to be able to enjoy others. I mean, I mean, to the point where they think you can, they just invite you in to enjoy their mess, but they don't think it's mess. Because they've gotten used to living around this mess. They've gotten used to even enjoying the mess. And some of the people, when you try to get rid of the mess, will fight you about mess. And it's phenomenal how, when they're trying to get rid of stuff, I mean, the type of anxiety that they go through. And the people that are look on the outside looking in like, fam, like, you don't realize that this is nothing. But they're willing, say, I'll be willing to not have relationships with none of y'all because I like my mess. And today in the Bible, we're going to talk about 
All of us are hoarders. Did you know that? All of every, I don't care how cute you are, how nice you are to people, um, where you work, where you don't work, <laughs> um, all of us are hoarders. <clears throat> and we're, the, we're hoarders of one major thing, sin. I mean, because, you know, we've gotten so, so many of us have gotten so used to our sin, we invite people in not realizing how much of a mess we are. And so, and, and what, we're, what we'll say is we'll build, we'll live in functional dysfunction in our sin rather than allow that to be removed in order that can, we can be in relationship with others. And so Paul talks about this idea in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Where in Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking about barriers that were between Christians and God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through about the 11th verse, 10th verse deals with that. But then from verses 12 on begins to deal with the barriers between Christians. The first part of the passage deal with our horizontal relationship, our vertical relationship with God. And the, 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 the latter verses, verses 12 through about 22 deals with our uh, uh, horizontal relationship with other believers. And so here in this text, it reads in verses 14 and 15, it says, For he himself is our peace, say peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Say one new man. In the place of two, so making peace. I want to talk about for a little while, identified by peace. Identified by peace. If you remember Ephesians, we're talking about the identity of the believer. So, so God is now in Christ reorchestrating the Christian's life and ordering it around the positional thing that Christ did on the cross that brought us up in a relationship with him. So now, fam, we have a brand spanking new identity. Now, what he's doing is he's laying out different aspects of what our identity looks like. And one of the things that he is going to talk about in this next section is how we're identified by peace. Now, I, I, li I like this passage because it's talking about the, the beef, the beef between God and man was talking about first. Now it's going to talk about the beef between man and man. Now, now we're going to talk about how cast beef with one another, how, how what, what Christ did to deal with the beef between Christians. Craziness, right? So here in the text, you see him starting off with a beautiful statement, which brings us to our first point and only point. The gospel destroys the barriers between Christians. The gospel destroys the barriers between Christians. Hearing this passage from a background standpoint, you got to understand what was happening. So back in the day, back then, you know, Jews and Gentiles had no love for each other for the most part. No love at all. We'll talk about what the no love philosophy looked like from the Jews' perspective. Then we're going to talk about what the no love philosophy looked like from uh, the Gentile perspective or the Greek perspective. But here it starts off with a major theological proposition. It's a theological proposition that if you were writing a paper would be your thesis statement to help the entire paper to have cohesiveness. 
And in order to wrap us around the philosophy of what he wants to talk about in relation to us being identified by peace, one of the things he do, does up in the joint is he, he talks about um, the theological premise for peace. And he says, he himself is our peace. I like that. For he himself is our peace. Look at verse 13 first so you can understand the four here. <clears throat> Whenever you see a four, therefore, you got to see what the therefore is there for. Or the four is there for. Verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Now, what's interesting is, is that peace is not a feeling here. Peace is not a situation in particular here. Peace is not your stage of life here. Peace is not what you like or dislike here. Peace is a person. <laughs> I, I, I like that. <clears throat> because, because now we're seeing that, 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 that peace is broader than the way we as Christians and people in the world have created peace. In other words, there, we must understand that in relation to peace, peace is a person. And since peace is a person, there is no peace without this person. None. 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 I don't care if you burn incense. You know what I'm saying? You got, you, you know, you, you got um, uh, uh, mood lamps and mood rings and lava jars. Y'all, some, I'm dating some of y'all. You know what I'm saying? You got, you, got, you got candles lit. You know what I'm saying? You play jazz. You know, you watch ballet. You know what I'm saying? And, and that makes you feel different. No, that's not necessarily peace. That's the, the see, see, ah, man, peace in this text is presented centrally and mainly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, to authentically experience peace, a person has to experience Jesus. Now, this peace centralizes itself in, in, in three ways. Peace is positional peace, there's practical peace, and there's ultimate peace. I'll define peace in a second. There's, there's, there's positional peace. Um, there is practical peace. And there's ultimate peace. Now, everyone that knows Jesus Christ as Savior has positional peace. That positional peace finds itself in two ways. It finds itself mainly and centralized in relationship with two groups of people. Um, um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God's people. That's where the peace is centralized, okay? Everything else is not going to be peaceful because practical peace isn't going to happen until Jesus comes back. So that means the potential for peace the, uh, is not only we have the potential for peace with God, we have, pe- we have peace with God. Why? Because God's wrath was coming after every last one of us like a mug. Coming after us really, really hard to destroy us. Jesus Christ came with his cool self, smashed the beef on the cross. Now he smashed the beef on the cross, not only between God and man, that's the main place of peace, which he's going to talk about in a minute, like in verse 16, 17, right? But now we see by God's grace that he's beginning to talk about and open the myriad of what it looks like for Christians to be at peace with one another. So he says, he himself is our peace. But, but many of us in relation to peace, and I'm going to define it in a second, we have misconceptions about what peace is. And one of the biggest misconceptions about peace is agreement. Because most of us think in order to be in agreement with other um, at peace with other Christians, mainly, we have to agree on every theological principle. 
But do you know that most reasons why Christians don't have peace usually doesn't have anything to do with doctrine. It has everything to do with everything else. It's some more. And I'm going to answer a real, I'm, we're going to walk through a real key question in a second. But also, <clears throat> um, another misconception about peace is positional peace in Christ between Christians automatically means that there will be practical peace. Because, because let me tell you something. If you look through the New Testament, most of the New Testament was written because Christians wasn't at peace with each other. Except for maybe like, maybe like Ephesians and, and maybe Thessalonians. But there was, there was hostility issues and peace issues between Christians. So therefore, peace has nothing to do with situation. Peace transcends the situation. Always transcends. From, from the OT to the NT, it, it, tra it transcends both. And I'm going to talk about the implications of Shalom and the implications of Arene up here in this passage. You know, <laughs> and, so, and so Arene, a beautiful word. You find some churches that have the name Arene Christian Center, that type of thing. Peace Christian Center, great thing. You know what I'm saying? Shalom. But this word Arene points back. This word Arene points back to the word Shalom. Say Shalom. In its infant state, um, in, in its truest state, shalom, family, um, <clears throat> it means, and you're going to hear me talk a lot about shalom, <clears throat> but shalom means wholeness. In its, in its central form, it means wholeness. <clears throat> um, a, a shalom in its central state means to re-stitch back together everything to, towards God's design. In other words, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 116 that everything was made for Christ. <clears throat> Since everything was made for him, he has a purpose for everything that he created. Therefore, shalom or arene is what that picture looks like when it's completed in Christ. Now, however, this is a side note, but mission is the means for shalom. Are you with me? So missions, missions move us quickly and more effectively towards this comprehensive shalom and this comprehensive wholeness that we're talking about. So hence the word can describe both the content and the goal of Christian preaching. The, the message itself is even called the gospel of peace in places like Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14 and Acts chapter 10 36 and also here in this verse. In other words, the biblical concept of peace is primarily that of wholeness, meaning this divinely wrought reality, it exercises a mighty influence in the present world, though it still awaits its fulfillment. And so we see, we, we've talked about this, but a peace in Christ is first soteriological, say soteriological. That just a little 10 cent word just means relating to salvation. That's just a little 10 cent word. So, you know, somebody will say, tweet, you know, so trilogically, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you can be deep with yours, but it's all good. So, but it means peace grounded in God's work through redemption. God buys stuff back so it can look like he wanted to look. Redemption happens through the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel is preached and someone's saved, they're redeemed. Therefore, shalom happens because something that wasn't at peace with God is now at peace with God. Now it has to be in peace with God's people because these people have been soteriologically brought into one community, even though they exist in different local congregations. But, but positionally, all Christians all over the world are supposed to have peace with one another. 
But it also centralizes itself in harmony. Now, we're going to zoom it into this context, really. But I just wanted you to get a general sense of this word, of this word arene, or the Hebrew term that's used in the OT, um, harmony. And so, and so peace, in the sense of wholeness, is both between men and the world, and it brings newness to human relationships. So be at peace with one another, you'll see in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. You'll see it in Mark 9, 50. So the peace to which the Christian is called in this text, in this context, talks about the positional peace that all Christians have between one another through Christ. And so he says, again, he says, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, say in his flesh, in his flesh, um, the dividing wall of hostility. And so now, one of the things that's a barrier, though, to us understanding this is this idea of hostility. It, it points back to um, several things. Some, some, some cats believe different things about this, but everybody believes central about it. Now, when you look at this wall of hostility, everybody always asks, what's the wall of hostility? Well, I think the text tells you exactly what it is. However, in the temple, there was the outer court, there was the inner court, there was the holies of holies. Now, the high priest got a little string tied behind his ankle, and that cat walked up in there once a year. Yom Kippur, he walked up in there scared to death with a little torch, you know what I'm saying, with his gear on, and blood from the past years all over, his, all over him, right? He walked in. Now, if, if main man didn't do one thing right, all they hear was poof, poof. They'd be like, drag him out. They put, he just drags out back out, the t back out of the joint. Now, that's where only he was supposed to go once a year, right? But then you got the inner court where worship was able to take place and the Jews who were God's chosen community were able to ex experience. Now, Herod, after the second temple period, which is after the last period of the OT, right up in there, right, that they had an outer court where the, um, the Gentiles who were God-fearers were. In other words, we like Yahweh. We believe in the law, whole nine, right? And so the party would be going on, and the Jews would be up in there getting their, getting, their, getting their worship on, you know what I'm saying, doing their thing. Then the wall was in between both of them, right? The cats looking between, <laughs> yeah, how y'all doing, Gentiles? How y'all doing? What's up? Gentiles on the other side, like, dang, man. Man, I want to be able to go in there, you know what I'm saying? And so, and so this wall became a wall of hostility. Now, applicationally, that's what that's, that could possibly be pointing to in this text. But specifically, the wall came from the law. Now, what that what that points to is is that is is that the wall of hostility was developed because of God's call for the Jews to be a distinctive people. Now, missions is not a New Testament principle; it's an Old Testament principle. Missions did not begin in the Old Testament, New Testament. It began with the Old Testament, and it didn't begin with Israel. It began with God. God was the first missionary because Adam was lost. He went after him and sought him. That when he said, Adam, where are you? He was going after him. That's missions. Now, what happened in Abraham is Abraham became the first announced missionary and his and the community that would believe based on his faith would be a missionary community. So what God did as a pointer to Jesus is he plucked out redemptively the smallest, the least group of people in all of the area and made them his. Now, what he wanted them to do, now, they weren't worth nothing. They was, the, they was the bottom branch of the people, right? But everybody, I mean, it, had, it was flyer people out there for him to pick. Flyer nations, booming nations. But he's like, I'm going to pick these cats right here. Clad out, he brings them in. Then he gives them 
information that reflects his holiness. So they like, man, you know what I'm saying? So they had civic law, they had moral law, and they had ceremonial law. Y'all still going with me, baby? Y'all still with me? Okay. So those three levels of law were supposed to be kind of a distinction issue. And what it was supposed to do, it was, it was supposed to wave the aroma of who God was to the nations. So, so people are supposed to say, dang, they don't glean the edge of their land based on Levi, the Levi, and I can just eat free? They, they had edge of the land buffets for people that didn't know God so that they can eat and then talk to them about Yahweh. Well, well, well. See, missions was in the Old Testament, you know what I'm saying? When they worshiped and they just think, when they didn't eat, they was like, now nah, I don't eat the swine, fam. Like, it wasn't like swine, like you was profitable about it. You know why? And everything that was distinctive about them was supposed to create questions for those that don't know Jesus, know Yahweh. And in the questioning of that, it would create a point for what makes you different and why you different. Then they start talking about their God. Okay. That, that, that was distinction. But instead of, of, of letting that distinction exalt God, they let the distinction exalt themselves. <laughs> and, and, and so what happened is they got snotty with this. No, I'm saying I don't mess with Gentiles like Jonah. He's like, God, I'm, go, go to who? Like, you got to understand, there were levels of Gentility, right? Now, <clears throat> there were Gentiles. You don't want to mess with them, but we nice to them. Then there were Gentiles. You know, I ain't cool with them. But then there were Gentiles. Make you make an ugly face, right? Now, the, now, the, now the, the Assyrians, which the Ninevites were the, the capital nation of Syria, were the worst of the worst Gentiles. Because why? They would beat you down like, for a while. Like, they were... Listen, you don't understand. Like, they would stretch you out. One dude would be working on your pinky. Somebody else would be up your nose with some tweezers. Then somebody would be on your eyeball. Somebody would be on your pinky. Somebody, I mean, all of them would be, and you'd be stretched out and just being tortured, and they'll keep you alive while they do it. So Jonah was called to go to them. He said, nah. But he forgot because prophets are supposed to call God's people back to God's original premise for them. That's what prophets are for. But he showed that he wasn't about God's original premise. He was about his personal preferences. And so this dividing wall developed where, where instead of being distinct for the purpose of mission, Jews got real snotty. So hostility through the law because they, we, we don't worship this, we don't do this, we don't do that. We, and the Gentiles said, we don't like y'all either because y'all atheists. Atheists was anybody that didn't believe in the pantheon of gods that existed um, in Gentile folklore. So now you got cats over here like, we don't like you. He like this, I don't like you either. We, and we ain't going to mess with each other then. So when you go to all of these cities, the Jews, that's why you see through Acts, Jews was a very sectarian community that was within all of these places, but they weren't being missionaries. They were just going to their synagogue, enjoying their synagogue life, but wasn't engaging nobody with the truth of Yahweh. <laughs> and so this wall built, they don't mess with us. That's why you see Jesus with the Samaritan woman. She said, y'all don't mess with us and we don't mess with y'all. Y'all say worship down here, we say worship up here. There's barriers up. But the main barrier to hostility wasn't that wall. It was the law that exposed sin. And instead of saying, man, our sin is being exposed because of the law. And what makes us distinct is we allow God to deal with our sin. And we want you to join our community with that. <laughs> instead, we say, my, my, you know, the law makes me better than you. When the law was never meant to sanctify. By works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Romans 2.20. Romans 3.20. You know what I'm saying? And so, and, so, and so right up in here, so you got this happening. And so now here comes Jesus talking to Gentiles. 
You know what I'm saying? Even though he come from the lost sheep of Israel, Seraphonician woman killed it on faith. He's like, bow. I ain't seen no faith like this in all of Israel. Centurion dude. You know what I'm saying? Bow. I, I believe you're a man of authority. I'm a man of authority. If you tell somebody to go out, he'll tell them to go. And he told them all that. He said, boom, I ain't never seen no faith like this in all of Israel. Jews standing around. And so what God said in the Old Testament is I will use, and it points even in Romans chapter 9 through 11, it'll say I will use the Gentiles to make you jealous because you wouldn't walk in distinction, but I will graft them in without putting you out if you are believing Jews. So Everybody will become one community through Christ. So when Christ died on the cross and his body was getting ripped up, he was getting ripped up because of the wrath of God, but he was getting ripped up because the law was bringing down on us. And so he wanted us to have peace in our local communities. Now, let's do some application. Because, because now I believe that the church does not walk. We don't walk in practical peace. We don't, we don't. One of the biggest questions I always get from people is if the church is one and y'all supposed to be all what y'all are, why y'all got so many denominations and networks and different peoples and believe all types of different things? And I always hate that question. I like to stay on the theological stuff. But when you start messing with the church, it's mess, it messes with me, right? So I love the church. I'm not one of them dudes hating on the church. So one of the, one of the issues that we work through is this piece that God wrought between Christians, especially here in the Texas, Jew and Gentile, is supposed to show off the glory of God to those who knew that prior to salvation, these people would have never messed with each other. So if God allowed them, uh, Gentiles in Asia, uh, Gentiles in Ephesus, Gentiles in Macedonia, Gentiles in Philippi, and Jews all over that area who used to worship separately, engage one another separately, are now being engaged in one community together and actually sit and eat with one another and will actually fight you. I mean, not fight, literally, but talk with you and say, this is why we do this. That's why Paul went, all, Peter, Paul went off on Peter. Because he said, oh, are you fronting now? Like you eating ribs all at the table with barbecue sauce on your mouth before your boys came. But see, now your boys came down from Jerusalem. Now you're getting all different and new. See, Paul was a real dude. He wasn't no punk dude either. He was a real dude. And so he, and so he said, you front on the gospel right now. And so, and, and, so, and so today we have the same thing in the church in relation to this. And so why there, go back to that question, why are there so many distinctions and differences? Well, what, happened, well, what the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, it says, we see in a glass dimly, but face to face, we will know, we will fully know just as we have been fully known. Meaning God fully knows us and he fully knows all of the information. The Bible isn't everything about God. It's all we need to know right now about him. <laughs> But, but what people do, because we see part, that means we're not going to have full exegetical clarity and theological clarity on non-essentials. But we will have clarity on essentials. So that means there are things that we can say if you don't believe this isn't Christian. Y'all still tracking with me? But then there are things that we say, listen, listen, if you disagree on that, fam, it's all good. But what we've done is we've spoken where the Bible is silent and made our preferences central versus the principles in Scripture central. <laughs> and so now, you know, we'll beat down somebody. We'll let somebody believe anything about Jesus down on the cross, but say something about my little, my little sectarian doctrine. Now, go further than that, not only indoctrinal hostility we see today but, uh, 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 and, and, and all of that and, and our preferences, but we see racial hostility. We see racial hostility. 
Now, I'm not one of them dudes that believe, you know, just every church got to be multi-ethnic. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Amen. Somebody said, well, in heaven, all of every tribe and tongue and they that see, that ain't got nothing to do with the local church on Sunday mornings and in small groups. And listen, listen, everybody like I, this is an interesting thing. I always have pastors, especially my white brothers. They'll ask me, they'll say, how do we get black people to our church? And I said, where, did, where are you located? That's what I asked. So where were you located? Well, you know, we're really white. They always say that. We're in a really white area. And I'm like, well, you're probably not going to get black people there. And guess what? You're not in sin because of that. I said, God called you to reach the people where you are and to be a missionary to the world, to the nations. The reason why the nations exist in eternity is because God's people being obedient to the Great Commission in time. But guess what, though? We're called here to be a multi-ethnic community at Epiphany Fellowship. Now, that's because we exist in a multi-ethnic environment. That means that around here we got a lot of white people, around here we got a lot of black people, and around here we got a lot of Latinos and internationals. So guess who we should be looking like? The people in this area. Now, that's just us seeing positional peace, but now let's talk about practical peace. Now, let's talk about what, what practical piece it look like between us, you know, because around, around, you know, black people, you know, we do stuff like put up walls like, you know, how white folk are. When we by ourselves, you know, white folk. Then a the white brother go back, hey, brother, how you doing? When you know, white folk, y'all do the same thing, too. Man, those people, some of us. And if you're a Christian talking about another Christian like that, you're putting up a new wall. You're putting up a new wall that the gospel has already torn down. <laughs> if you talk about lower socioeconomic people because, they, because you see a, girl, a lady on the corner cuss out her, she's a single mom and she cuss out her kid, instead of talking about, see these people around here, even black people, we do that too. You see how they are? See how the people are. You can't tell black people nothing. And with that, see, all, know what that is? You can't, you can't give. See, all of that's, that's barriers, man. Because we don't envision God changing anybody. <laughs> we don't. We don't really envision lost people getting saved and the gospel doing something to them. Because we, because know what we did? We did the same thing as Jews did in the Old Testament now. <laughs> we did the same thing. We did the exact same thing. But the reason why you pick up your cross daily is not to carry it, but to hit stuff with it. You pick up your cross daily, you dragging that joint, you see a wall, guess what you do? Pick that joint up. Heave ho or a cow. You knock down a wall with that joint. <clears throat> because, because we need to, because what God wants to do, this is what God wants to do. God wants his redeemed community to exist in a hostile environment forever until he comes back. Not forever, but until he comes back. So that means, let me just tell you this. There is going to be hostility because we live in a fallen world. That means you're going to have suffering. That means you're going to be frustrated a lot. That means that God isn't necessarily going to heal everything. 
He will heal everything ultimately, and he'll heal some stuff temporarily if it gives him best glory. But it means that there is going to be hostility and frustration, but in the midst of that, there should be a community of people who have peace with one another, even though their environment's not peaceful. <laughs> there is going to be a fight for hostility in the church until Jesus comes back. So, if you're going around looking for the perfect church, because see, most of us are going to look for church to benefit us. So, dude, what the children's ministry like? Now, what the worship like? I don't like all that hollering. Let's let, hold on, let's start on worship for one second about hostility. That's another wall, right? You know, because, you know, some, some brothers and sisters in Christ, you say, I like to meditate. You know, and I, I, want the, I want to just, I want hymns, and I want the weighty theology of the hymns. Then another Christian say, you don't need all that. <laughs> Man, I want to shout me through a row. You know what I'm saying? I want to, and look, and I want the words to, I want the words to repeat itself. Jesus, Jesus. Come on, y'all, say it again. Jesus. Don't. And, and the brothers want to meditate. It's like, man, why? I mean, they've said Jesus 30 times. I mean, God. And then the people that like the hypeness go to the hymn church and say, they dead. Right? Yeah, yeah. Guess what that is? A wall. <laughs> a wall. <clears throat> That's it's a wall. Now, but, we, but if we took the time to allow Jesus to be our peace practically, then we try to understand why our brothers and sisters like the hymns and the weighty theology songs because they like to meditate on the weight of who God is. But then the person that, like the repetitious joints, all, all over and over again, they don't, see, then, then the other side need to understand that produces meditation for what you've been through. And what it happens is, is you see how God's carried you through stuff, and then when you keep repeating it, it just wells up like this. You, you, gotta be, you ain't never experienced, you gotta be experienced both. You gotta have that theology that make you understand who God is, but then on the other side, you gotta be able to say, Now, and then you got to be able to not get scared. Like, on one side, you know, <laughs> you know, one side the people bored, they feel like I'm bored there, and then people say, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ there are scaring me. And so, you know, but seek to understand those differences. And it, what, what if you, hold on, let's just take that. Let's see if Jesus brought peace to both of them. Then them two people got together. Then you got the weighty theological truth about God, and you meditating on that, and then you get up in a vamp. <laughs> but see, when God brings stuff together, see, we operate, we don't see the beauty of God unless we allow people who were, we should have beefed before salvation. But now God has brought us in community together, whether we go to the same gathering of the saints or not. But we, with all Christians are supposed to have positional peace. And so the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. Another applicational point, we're going to be a multi-ethnic church, and so therefore it's going to be uncomfortable. Economically uncomfortable for some people who are, who, who, who are in a higher tax bracket and uncomfortable those who are in a lower tax bracket. 
So therefore, this church is going to have an environment of hostility. There are going to be black men marrying white women, Latino women marrying Indian dudes. It's going to be people marrying across ethnically. And children are going to grow up not knowing which ethnicity they are. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know which one. I'm just both. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then you're going to have people. You're going to have all types. Then you're going to have poor people coming in. You're going to have ritzy people coming in. And the question is, are we going to be practically able to accept one another and love one another and be able to deal with the reality of those differences? Because that's going to be our reality. And what God wants to use that for is that distinction. Not so we can say, see, we multi-ethnic. You know what I'm saying? We got all kinds of people. What kind of people your church got? See, now you back on the Jew stuff, right? You back Old Testament stuff, wilding out. But see, what we want to do is we want this to point to the eternal shalom that God will bring. But every, every local community is supposed to do that. And so when he says in the text that Jesus Christ, through his flesh, broke down the hostility, that means that Jesus Christ removed every barrier that was in the way of people who were dead in him to be able to be one in him. And so what's beautiful <coughs> is that he says, by abolishing the law of commandments, told you it was the law, <coughs> that he may create in himself one new man. I like to call that the newmanity or the new humanity. Therefore, there's only two races of people on earth now. Did y'all know that? Redeemed and unredeemed. There's no such thing as interracial marriage. Only if one is, a, if, if two white people are married and one's a Christian and one's not, that's an interracial marriage. But if two Christians who are of different ethnicities are married, that's a monoracial marriage because they're both redeemed by the blood. Now, it's a multi-ethnic marriage, but it's not a multiracial marriage because of the blood that's running through your veins. <laughs> so, Jesus said, I didn't come to, and, and some people think he's destroying the law by doing this. He said he abolished the law of the commandments and kind of try to look at law, uh, Paul's statement here that he abolished the law. But Jesus said in John 5, 17, he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to do what? Fulfill it. So how does he fulfill it? What, is, what does that look like? <coughs> Meaning, the abolish means to cause something to lose its power of effectiveness on whatever it's affecting. So abolish the effect of the law on us so that there can no longer be walls of hostility between us, but now unity. You know, and so Jesus Christ, through his word, has done this. And he's completed the requirements on our behalf and made us one. But then it says, in, in the place that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two soul-making peace. So there's only one people of God. There's only one group of people who are redeemed. John 10 says, this is one of my favorite passages on this, and we're going to shut it down. John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own and know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will, they, will, they will be one flock with one shepherd. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, 
saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what makes us unified is our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Bottom line. We're going to continue to build on this in the next few weeks, but I want you to prepare to begin to looking at uh, being a part of local community for not for your preferences, but for God's mission. Instead of looking at what the church can do for you, most people say, am I fed? Um, do I like to worship? And if you've got kids, how's my children? And what ministries you got available for my marriage? And so it's all, it's all about you. But in the Bible, being a part of a local community was all about God and his mission. That means that no one's going to rig the ministry to be convenient for you. Matter of fact, even if there are conveniences rigged for you, God always brings inconveniences when people get comfortable. Okay, y'all think I'm lying. I got a few more minutes of preaching. Okay, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they, you know, and then the Holy Spirit comes, speaking tongues, you know, everybody understand, speaking in their languages, bow, Peter gets up, men of Israel, clacow, preach the gospel, three Gs of people get in, right? Then, all of a sudden, they're eating meals together, enjoying each other, chilling out together, and then there's some persecution comes. A little bit, a little something, 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 something. Then they go through some more, then they go through some more. Then Acts chapter 6 come around. Then the Hellenistic Jews and the regular Jews are like, man, y'all accent funny, we're not going to serve them. But they don't sound like us. They sound like they're from another part of town. Forget them. So hostility happens in the body of Christ. Again, and therefore, um, deacons came up in order to be peacekeepers in that particular time to serve, to take off the plate of the, the, of the leaders so that they can do what they're supposed to do. But then also, there can't be things, things falling through the cracks in relation to God's mission and God's health and God's shalom among his people. Then you get to chapter 8 because they was real uncomfortable. And in chapter 8, it says Paul came. This dude named Saul came and was wrecking shop with the church killing Christians, dragging them all up, and he was one of the ones standing there when, when Stephen got stoned. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden now, Christians break out uh, all of this, all, all 3,000, 3, probably around 5,000 Christians existed at that time. Five to 6,000 Christians in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, hell breaks loose in Jerusalem, and guess what they got to do? Scatter. Guess where the first place they scattered? Judea, Samaria. Go back to Acts 1-8. Guess what they were supposed to do? Go from Jerusalem. But it took for them to seek peace in the world, for God to bring hell their way, for them to be obedient to mission. Therefore, God is always going to bring stuff our way because it's not just about our spiritual growth, it's about kingdom growth. <laughs> and so God is going to continue to make us nice and uncomfortable. But, 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 but what's beautiful about that is in the midst of discomfort, God always has peace available. Did you, do you get that? In the midst of discomfort, God always has peace available. And so I pray that we learn that Jesus is our peace. That, that's a lesson I'm still learning. We don't need to show a show of hands. I'm still learning that Jesus is my peace. And not my ability to make my life as... In max, put it in maximum American comfort in order for me to experience peace. But peace comes only from Jesus. Because God, God can, I know some of us dream about being millionaires. If you are a millionaire, God's still going to allow something to come your way so that your millions won't be comforted because he hates, he's jealous. And he don't like anybody else to have a place in your life. So listen, no, you can have money, you can have prestige, all of that. But guess what he's going to bring? Stuff your way. 
And what's beautiful about it, though, is all he's trying to make sure is, is that nothing else is your peace. That's all he's trying to do. What's beautiful about God is he, he's given us peace with him, but he also expects us, even if we don't like each other. Because sometimes like has to be sanctified. <laughs> even if we don't like each other, guess what God does? He still wants peace among us. So, Father, we thank you and we bless you for the position of peace in Christ, the potential, the potential for peace in Christ, and the ability to practice peace in Christ. And so, God, this is beautiful that in Christ you have identified, you want us to be identified by it. No matter where we are on our journey, no matter where we are on our walk, no matter where we are on our thought, you are our peace. And I love you, God. We love you. And God, we know that you're going to help us to be uncomfortable. <laughs> um, you've removed the hostility that's between us and one another, but you haven't removed the hostility between us and what it means to live in this world. But you use everything. You are the grand recycler. You, like, there's no, you don't waste anything. And so, God, I pray that, you, that we as your distinctive community would walk as a, as a community of missionaries, not an evangelism department, but we become evangelists, all of us, to walk in the reality of reflecting the beauty of Christ where we live and dwell and see open doors for people to be hit up with the gospel. And so, God, I pray that they would both see and hear the gospel equally, not one or the other, but both and. And Lord God, teach us, teach us what it means to walk in what you've just taught us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.